Welcome to Living Well with Rent Well, the podcast for anybody who's thinking about getting into real estate, in real estate, and wants to take their game to the next level. I'm your co-host, TJ Hawk. And I am your co-host, Rob Coldwell. All right, here we go. Another episode of Living Well with Rentwell. I'm your co-host, TJ Hawk. And with me today, we have Eric. How are you, Eric? I'm doing well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, TJ. This is, this is great. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. Yeah, me too. We, uh, today's uh, conversation is all around uh, basically the art of negotiation. And, uh, you know, Eric, I was reading a little bit about your, your, your background, your profile, and it says you have a mat, your master certified negotiation expert, and you're an instructor for the Real Estate Negotiation Institute, which I didn't even know was a real thing. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. fascinating. It's uh, it's like a perfect topic, especially in today's market. You know, it's whether you're hiring somebody and there's that negotiation that's going on or whether you're collaborating in teams, there's always negotiating that goes on there. Yeah. And even on the real estate side, negotiating maybe with the building owner or negotiating with another agent or negotiating with whoever. Um, yeah. So... Excited to, to jump into this. Why don't you give us a little bit about you, some of your background, and we'll go from there. Yeah, well, just to, to piggyback on what you just said, we are we as human beings, we, we are always negotiating. So especially in the real estate space, um, we're negotiating all the time. And and as I as the, the quote I like to uh, to bring forward when we're talking about negotiations is is the uh, the Chris Voss quote from uh, from Never Split the Difference, and he says the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. Ooh. So when we when we when we're the salespeople in this realm, or when we are in real estate. We always want to think about where's our next negotiation, um, what what phase of the negotiation we're in, because we are likely in one, even if we don't know it. Hmm. Um, but uh, to give you a little bit of background, I am I am a, a master certified negotiation expert. Um, I teach collaborative negotiation for a company called the Real Estate Negotiation Institute. And I'm also a practicing real estate agent in New York City. So I work for Brown Harris Stevens uh, in Manhattan. Um, but my journey with the Real Estate Negotiation Institute goes back about uh, about eight years now. Um, I, I was a director of sales and development for a small real estate firm in Manhattan and decided it was time for me to go back into the field as an agent. Uh, I love the interaction with clients. And so I did that. I took that leap back from management into uh, brokerage. And, um, and quickly found that one of the things that I missed about being a director of sales and development was training and coaching. And uh, so I happened to meet um, the, the um, Tom Heyman, who is the, the CEO and founder of the Real Estate Negotiation Institute, and take and I took one of his courses and it blew my mind as someone who had been teaching negotiation, who had been coaching in that space, uh, what, what his course provided was was just a new outlook and a new way to think about negotiation that I hadn't really approached. Um, so after having taken his class, I, I decided that this is something that I wanted to teach. Um, so I pounded down that door and uh, and and became certified as, a, as an instructor for the Real Estate Negotiation Institute. And now I've been teaching the, the core concepts course, CNE core concepts, 
and CNE advanced concepts courses, um, uh, both in person and then through the pandemic online via Zoom. Um, I live in New York City. I, I, I live in Queens and uh, have two daughters, one who's celebrating her 10th birthday today. Oh, nice. Uh, so it's a special day in our house. Oh, congratulations. My, my daughter just turned 10 a month ago. Oh, right. oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's great. Well, very neat. Thanks for sharing a little bit of, uh, about you. You know, when I think of negotiation, the first thing that comes to mind is um, nervousness or maybe mm-hmm. some anxiety or some, am I going to say the wrong thing? Or how do I even know what to say? Or, you know, wh- what angle are they coming from? And how do I? Yeah. So I'm curious to almost just to starting off the conversation with how can I learn to enjoy negotiating? Oh, that's one of my favorite questions. I, I'm I'm really, really glad that you asked that because it's one of the starting points that we always that we one of the places that we start is this idea that people have a negative reaction to negotiation um, or this anxiety or fear around negotiation. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is we always think of, or we oftentimes think of negotiation as this win-lose proposition, right? This fixed pie, I'm getting more or I'm getting less than the other side. And if I get more than the other side, I win. And if I don't, I lose. And what that creates within us is this idea that that this bi- this binary choice, right? I'm either going to be on the winning side or the losing side of this negotiation. So even entering in, into it becomes uh, a very daunting task. And then as, as negotiators negotiating for someone else, we are constantly in this fear of, am I getting enough for my client? And so those are really important. It's a really important question. How do I just start to understand negotiation better so that I can actually enjoy it? Um, the other thing I like to point out is even the greatest athletes. If you, if you hear interviews with Michael Jordan, um, or any great athlete who has mastered their craft and their sport, they, they always talk about the fact that there are butterflies in their stomach when they step out on that court in the big game. That's natural. So this idea that we would have some butterflies or some anxiety going into a negotiation, knowing that there are stakes involved, that's a good thing. That means that we understand that there's, there's value to be gained or lost and that there is, um, that there is, there are stakes on the table. So, so that's a good thing. Um, how you, how you would go about, um, getting ready to negotiate or becoming more um, excited or or less anxious about negotiation is th- it's very simple. It's about being prepared and and getting rid of the this mentality of the fixed pie. Um, what collaborative negotiation teaches us is that there is value to be gained in a transaction. You can actually make the pie bigger before you split the pie. And if you walk into a negotiation with this idea that I'm not here to crush the other side, I'm not here to rub their nose in the dirt, I'm not here to make them feel humiliated and and t- and, and have that win-lose proposition. When you go into it thinking, hey, look, there is a way for both sides to feel satisfied at the end of this transaction. They're not going to get everything that they want. We're not talking about splitting the pie 50-50 or getting as close to 50-50 as we can. We're talking about the idea of understanding relative value and that each party uh, values different elements of the transaction differently. So if I can go into it with this idea that there's value to be created, 
then I get rid of that anxious or that that win-lose mentality. And now I start to find ways to grow my side of the pie or grow, get the pie to be as big as it can so that I can claim as much value as I can and actually get more for my client than if I were just trying to get 51% or more of that fixed pie. So that's the idea of it is to change your mindset or to reframe negotiations from this do I win or do I lose to how can I enter a negotiation, be strategic and plan so that I can find and create value and get as much as I possibly can for my side while, as we say, adequately satisfying the other side. Hmm. I don't want the other side to feel that they've been manipulated, that they've lost, that they've um, that they've had their r- nose rubbed in the dirt because the minute that I treat them like that, in any subsequent negotiation we have, they're going to try to find retribution. They're going to claw back or worse, they may recess into their corner before we get to an agreement and make decisions that are not in their own self-interest. So that's, that's how I would do it. Yeah. That, th- thank you for that. It, you know, it makes me think of uh, the saying, people remember how you made them feel, not what you said. Yeah. So when you right. talk about collaborative negotiation, it makes me think of, well, how can we, how can we all win, right? Win, win, win. Um, yeah. So how did you make that person feel? And what I love about negotiation is, and particularly the topic that we're, we're going through today is it can be used almost in any area of your life. And that's right. We were talking about this earlier. It's w- whether it's between team members, whether if, if I'm a real estate investor or an agent looking to buy a property or invest in, you know, whatever it might be, negotiation is everywhere. And, it's everywhere. Uh, so I'm curious, do you, you had mentioned preparing for negotiation. Do you have any quick tips on how I could prepare for negotiation? What maybe there's some research involved or just a mental preparation to get yourself in that state? Yeah, absolutely. And as if you, there's a great, another great book, I mentioned Never Split the Difference. Another great book is Negotiation Genius by Deepak Malhotra and Max H. Bazerman from the Harvard program. And they say negotiation is an information game. It's so simple, but it is exactly right. So when you're preparing for negotiation, the first thing I would say is you need to have a strategic tool. You have to have systems in place that allow you to structure that negotiation. And the first thing you want to do is get as gather information. You have to gather information from your side first, right? You have to understand what your client is looking for, what they want, what they need, what their must-haves are, what their experience has been, um, what their apprehension is, what is their risk tolerance, how, and then, and then you have to look at the power dynamic or the power uh, balance, as we call it. Like who has market power if you're in a, in a situation like real estate? Who has knowledge and expertise power? Who has the power of sound logic, meaning comps, or whether it's a rising market or a falling market? Who's got the sound logic on their side? Who's got planning power? And this is as a skilled negotiator, once you get to that point, you actually start with a level of power. You enter into a negotiation because you have planning power and knowledge and expertise power. Power is relative. So the more you know and the more expertise and skill you have within your craft or your field, um, and the better you are at planning, get, finding out what your minimums, your maximums, and your goals are, when you can come to the table already having figured that out, 
you're negotiating from a position of strength. So finding out the power balance um, between the relative parties um, and then just making sure that you're 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 structured in your approach, meaning that you are taking diligent notes. You understand when your p- client's position has changed um, or or when you find out new information. So all of that on your side is important. And then you've got to do the same side, same thing on the other side. You know, we often oftentimes say start with the other side, put yourself in their shoes, think double, all of those phrases. But that's that idea of understanding what the other side is trying to achieve, what they want and what they need. And I'd say that this is a big misstep for anybody in sales because oftentimes a big misstep for anybody in sales who's negotiating. They think that by asking the other side what they want, that they're somehow putting themselves in a position that they have to get it for them or that they're guaranteeing them some slice of the pie or some value. And you're not. You're just taking an interest in what the other side is trying to achieve in that negotiation so that you can start to understand those relative value elements and start to um, match up or uh, persuade and trade, look for exchanges and that sort of thing. So starting with the other side, once you have identified your negotiating counterpart and trying to understand what they're trying to achieve and what they want is a huge first step uh, as well. As well. So you had mentioned... um real estate in there, I'd be curious, do you have like, what would be some common misstep missteps that a real estate professional uh, might make when they're entering a negotiation? Have you found any common, um, I use the word pitfalls, but mistakes or missteps that they use, especially in today's market, because yeah. everything is so competitive, you know, and buyers are waiving certain contingencies. And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, oftentimes a, a negotiator will go into a real estate negotiator, an agent will go into a negotiation without having the full picture in mind. We use the words promote and protect in real estate. They're all over the NIR Code of Ethics. They're all over New York City, the Rebney Real Estate Board of New York Code of Ethics. But this idea of promote and protect is so important because there's information that you can and should promote to the other side in order to um, in order to, uh, convey strength on your side. And then there's information that you need to protect, um, on behalf of your client because it will weaken their position or it will lose them leverage in a negotiation. So a lot of times agents are not aware of that, of those two things. They go into a negotiation, they start talking to the other side and they're, they're giving away value or they're giving away information that they shouldn't give. And when we talk about those relative value elements, when you show the other side that move-in date is not important to you or move-in date is extremely important to you, what you've just done is established for a skilled negotiator a trade that they can identify by giving you something that's of relatively low value to them to get something that's of relatively high value to them. So the minute that you say, oh, my client doesn't really matter, doesn't really care when we close, or my client really needs to close quickly, when you start giving away that information, you are giving the other side uh, of some valuable information to identify a trade that will they'll extract value from your side. And and if you would not say that information, if you'd protect that information, um, you could utilize that as a way to trade for your side. Maybe they don't, uh, maybe they have a, a timing issue for closing. Um, and without telling them that you do as well, you get the better end of that exchange because they don't know that you have that timing element or that timing issue. So 
giving away too much information is a huge issue at the beginning of a negotiation for many negotiators. And the other one is not being what I like to call ceaselessly curious. We have to continue asking questions and gathering information as much as we can, especially at what I call the tip of the spear, the beginning of the negotiation. The guards are down. There's, you know, the, there's not an offer on the table. Um, they need you and you need them. Your client look, wants to see a property. They have a property they need to sell. When both sides mutually benefit from the other side being involved, they give more information. So at the top of that, the tip of that spear, getting as much information as you can and being ceaselessly curious by asking questions in several different ways to get the most possible intel that you can is important. And that, you know, we can go into a whole um, another deep dive into a topic of of, of strategic questioning and, and how we ask questions, whether they're closed-ended or open-ended or speculative questions. There's a whole lot that we can do to ask questions in a different way to get better, different, other information. Yeah, that you asked, that was one question I had is, wow, so what, how do I know what information to give or to not give and what are some questions to ask? And you know, I've heard before, well, don't answer the question directly, answer it with a question. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> what it makes me think of is, you know, in today's market, there's, there's just, there's multiple offers, you know, and you are, you do have to be competitive and you really do have to negotiate with, could be up to 15, 20 offers on the same property. And yeah. so it's, I guess my question would be like, how do you, how do you deal with, competitor or I guess more, how do you deal with competitive negotiating, right? So somebody who's really kind of like trying to drive a hard bargain, you know, are there yeah. any tax and maybe they're not giving up information. So you are yeah. doing what you're talking about, which is asking questions, doing fact gathering, and they're just not giving you much. Um, right. How, how do you handle that? Well, there's, there's no, there's no magic bullet, so to speak, to getting information from the other side, but there are ways that we can influence and persuade the other side to give us more information. So, you know, what we can use are our tools of influence and persuasion and understanding competitive negotiation tactics. And that's all they are. So, so the first, let me cover the first part first. We talk about there are several different persuasion principles that we as human beings, not not just in Western culture or in the United States, but we as human beings have these in our primal brain, you know, the, this fight or flight or make fight, flight or make friends mentality, what we identify with in a very quick, short amount of time. So there are different persuasion principles like self-interest, which is getting someone to understand that what you're persuading them to do is in their interest, not yours. Uh, and I'll come back to that with a competitive negotiator because that's a huge one. But the self-interest principle is people act in their own self-interest. That is just the way that we operate. It's not meant to be offensive to you if they do it. When your client acts in their interest and you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not what I've been telling you for the last two weeks. How you're taking a position that is counter to all of the expert advice that I've been giving you, right? They're acting in their own interest. And that is how we behave. And the same thing is true with the other side. So self-interest principle, there's the, the, the contrast principle, the idea that, that people have in their mind a, a, a range of possibilities, right? And so we as, as negotiators want to persuade or influence the other side by reframing their contrast or by I, or by injecting contrast into our 
uh, our ability to persuade, like telling someone what the average list to close ratio in a certain neighborhood is compared to the offer price that you are that you are offering. So the average list to close ratio is 96%. We're already offering you 98% of the um, of your listing price to our initial offer. So I'm creating contrast between what is established in the neighborhood um, and what I am offering you. I'm all already offering you more than what the neighborhood uh, comps are showing. So that would be the, the idea of contrast principle. And there are several of these, the exchange principle, which is a reciprocity principle, the principle of liking or sameness, that, that idea that we make connections with each other. So using those persuasion principles to your advantage especially with a competitive negotiator is huge. Competitive negotiators respond well to the self-interest principle, as I mentioned. They do what's in their interest and they oftentimes, there's a lot of ego involved with a competitive negotiator. They want to win themselves. They're not, they're not necessarily as interested in their client's win as they are in their own win, right? So we can use that to our advantage. The uniqueness principle is another one that, that is that is uh, really effective with a, co a competitive negotiator. That idea that something that is scarce or unique is inherently more valuable. So offering them something that is unique instead of emailing them or calling them and saying, these are the five things I want you to answer, or these are the five questions I have, or this is what I want to talk to you about. Instead of saying what you, what you want or what you need, just call them up or send them a test and say, I have something really important to talk to you about. Something very simple like that. All of a sudden, their primal brains perks up and says, ooh, this is information that I can get from my client or I can get that nobody else has. I need to make that phone call. So using the, the, the uniqueness principle with, it, with a competitive negotiator, sound logic. Competitive negotiators are very good with data typically. So using logic and data, asking them to share their comp data so that you can look at it and, and actually go down deep, dig into what they're looking at and how they're viewing those comps and, and whether there are comps in there that, they're, that they've kind of shuffled in to bring up the price per square foot, um, that, that type of thing. Um, and then competitive strategies for tactics. As I mentioned, we, we in my classes, we go through a, a series of different tactics that competitive negotiators will use um, to their advantage. And the, the, there are a couple things that are important to remember. One is there's a Harvard phrase that says, name it to tame it. Call out the tactic. If you're dealing with a competitive negotiator, call them out. I see what you're doing here. Um, and then the other part of it is uh, don't be intimidated because these are just tactics. This is not a strategy. It's it's a small bit. It's meant to push you back or, you know, these hard bargaining, bullying tactics um, are just ways for them to kind of, for, for them to almost gaslight you, for you them to make you reframe your position and question your uh, your your position on an issue. That's what it's meant to do. So those are a couple of things and we can go deep in, into into the, the uh, competitive tactics as well. Um, but getting them to find uniqueness in what you're asking of them. And then going back to your first question about multiple offers and trying to deal with that situation, I would say it's more important than ever in a multiple offer situation that you identify exactly what the seller wants. You really need to understand if you can find again what Chris Va uh, Chris Voss calls the black swan. He named his entire company after this principle, that thing that you don't know you don't know. Mm -hmm. And once you uncover it, once you uncover that black swan, all of a sudden you have a 
a distinct competitive advantage over all of the other people competing because they're not asking the same questions. I'm writing that one down, the black suit. <laughs> that is great. It's, you know, and you, you had mentioned uh, basically saying, hey, it's important that we talk. Please call back or please email me back. It made yeah. me think of, well, gee, if I'm a property manager, how can I get somebody to actually, like maybe a tenant, how do I get them to actually call me back yeah. When they're delinquent on rent or if I, you know, I need to get something from them or whatever it might be, because I know at least in our space, we challenge, we're challenged with that, that we'll send the email, yeah. we'll make the phone call and silence, ghosting, right? That's the new yeah. catchphrase of the day is being ghosted. Well, to that point, if you don't mind me stepping in there for a second, to that point on tenants and especially delinquent tenants. And, you know, I, I have a 300 unit rental portfolio in Gramercy in Manhattan that I run the leasing for. And so through the pandemic, as you can imagine, and is likely the same in your market, um, you had tenants that were just up and leaving. And we, we luckily, because of the relationship we had with our tenants, with this particular landlord, our vacancy rate was a fraction of what other buildings had. You know, some buildings were looking at 20 to 30% vacancy rates and their attorneys were telling them, you know, you can try to hold them to their lease, but there are no rent landlord tenant uh, courts even open. And if you think that you're going to win a case against a tenant uh, it, during in the middle of COVID on on over you know, back rent, you're, you're, you're fooling yourself. So let them go and try to re-rent the apartment. So that was kind of the, the framework that we were working with. And so you, you really deal with in those situations when you're talking about delinquent rent or, or tenants leaving, you're talking about relationships. And the question is, how good is the relationship that you set up initially? And I can't, I can't stress enough to landlords how important it is that they remove that, um, that, uh, tenuous or, uh, opposition relationship between landlord and tenant. Because oftentimes in New York, at least, there is an oppositional relationship. The landlord's on one side, the tenant's on the other. And if the tenant can screw their landlord, um, they're, they're going to, you know, again, self-interest principle. I'm looking out for me. If they can find a way to get out or to, uh, to disadvantage the landlord, they will, unless they have a relationship with them, unless there's a mutual, a mutually beneficial relationship that is established. Now, all of a sudden, when you need to get a hold of that person or when you need to, try to strike a deal with them, they're far more likely to speak to you because they're not automatically going into their corner, right? That, that idea of entrenchment. And oftentimes the landlord tenant issues immediately. Landlord goes to this corner, tenant goes to this corner, and now they're both fighting their way out before they've even talked about a potential collaborative solution. Yeah, man, you hit the nail. Relationships uh, to me really stuck out. You know, and yeah. it's the idea of do you have even a relationship with this individual or have you had other conversations prior to just immediately being, hey, rents due? You know, right. have you done proactive just checking in? How you doing? You know, and right. So here's the million dollar question. Does this apply to kids? How do you negotiate? One hundred percent. I have um I've been writing uh and uh working on collaborative uh, negotiation strategies and techniques to teach in my daughter's, both of my daughter's schools. Really? Because it 100, it, it does 100%. And you talk about the persuasion principles, they apply 
uh, they're magnified when you're talking about uh, dealing with children because they make a lot of their decisions based on that primal brain, that immediate response. What does their brain tell them? Um, and that's that's very it's very uh, impactful for kids. But the other side of this is is you know a lot of people say that the best negotiator there is is, is a seven year old child. <laughs> Why? Because they they are ceaselessly curious. We as as we grow into adulthood, we start to feel that we're being too intrusive or that we're bothering someone or that it's not our place. Oh, we've we've asked too many questions and we start to put our own barriers on gathering information. Kids, no, they'll ask any question to anybody. They know who has what they want and they know exactly how they're going to go get it. And they'll use tact, tact, you know, competitive tactics like the broken rector tactic or the good cop, bad cop tactic. They'll use all of these tactics. Um, without even knowing that they're using them. It's just intuitive. Um, So it absolutely does work with kids. And I'll give you one example. Early on in my um, my older daughter, Cece, early on when she was, a, was, was learning to tie her shoes or was learning to, when she was speaking and, and starting to be available or able to have this kind of conversation that was about wants and needs, we started to have a policy in our, in our house. If you have, if you are complaining, throwing a tantrum, complaining, if you have a problem, um, you have to offer at least one solution. And if there isn't at least one solution offered, then the complaining or the tantrum stops, or at least our engagement of the complaining or tantrum will stop. I'm going to stop negotiating with you unless you're willing to come up with a solution. And it's amazing how this works. So, if, you know, my shoes are too tight. My shoes, my feet hurt. My shoes are too tight. Okay. What do you offer as a, as a solution to making your feet feel better or your shoes being less tight? And that is a far more productive conversation to have than the than just engaging in the stand for stand, what we call positional bargaining. No, they're not too tight. You wore them yesterday. They were, you know, they weren't too tight for you an hour ago. It gets us nowhere. But we do it. We engage in this as a, as as parents because it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating when we're not getting our way or, or we're delayed getting out the door. And so, you know, so finding those ways to use the persuasion principles and use and combat competitive tactics the way we do with other negotiators works wonders with kids. Patience. 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 And yeah, and hearing them, right? Being an empathetic, active listener. Because that's also a huge component of of negotiating is really hearing the other side and being uh, and and really taking an interest in what they're telling you. Same thing is true with our children. Instead of shutting them down or going, you know, your shoes don't hurt. Um, understanding what it what exactly hurts. Is it your toes? Is it your heel? Let's let's actually. I want to hear you. I want to know exactly where the pain is, so that we can come up with a solution together. Not so that I can tell you what the solution is so that we together can collaborate on a solution. And then over time, they then develop the skill to solve their own problems and start to help each other solve problems rather than telling each other what is right and what is wrong. You know, I see this with my kids now with their friends when they have a conflict. It's not I'm right, you're wrong. It is what what about this game don't you like, right? Man, that's a beautiful thing, I think. Yeah. God gave you two ears and one mouth, right? That's right. Listen and be <laughs> curious, right. be genuinely curious. That's mm-hmm. that rung very close to home. Uh, I appreciate you sharing <laughs> that. There's a lot I can learn from that. Um, so we're kind of at our time here. I could 
keep going. This is a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you know all the information that you're sharing, and we probably could spend three more hours on this topic. Ah, uh, yeah. Do you happen to have maybe you know the top three or five quick tips for any of our listeners on here, whether they're you know leading teams or they're in real estate or they could be in any other industry? Anywhere you'd like to get started or just tips? Yeah, you know, uh, going back to that conversation we we're having about uh, landlord, tenant, and just getting someone on the phone, any of those issues that arise from uh, a relationship where one side feels um, where, where there's conflict, could be some conflict. The, the, and, and this is great for team leaders. The, the culture that you establish the, the the beginning of the relationship, when you understand what it is that, that your teammate, your team, you know, if you're the team lead, what the agent, the, the, the junior agent, whatever you call them on your team, and I would suggest elevating their title as much as possible because that right there shows value in them. So treating them as someone who's more of an equal than, than having that like, you know, team lead minion relationship is important. But the better you can establish that relationship, show the other side that you want to know what they want out of their career, what they want out of their interactions with you, what their working environment looks like, what their strengths and weaknesses are, you know, what seat on the bus they are in, so to speak. The more you can establish that, there, then when there is conflict, when you have a, an issue with that teammate, you're going to find that getting to some sort of a solution is so much easier than it would be if you have this adversarial relationship or this, this authority and, uh, um, and, you know, this, this parent child relationship with your teammate. Um, they're going to be less likely to come to you when they have an issue. And if they do have an issue, they're going to be far more likely to back into their corner and, and try to fight their way out rather than come to you and say, how can we collaboratively find a solution? So that's one of them is just start with that idea of relationships, build trust as Stephen M. R. Covey says in the speed of trust, you know, that idea of those two dimensions of trust, the character and competence, right? You're coming to the table with a with a moral compass, with with an, with an integrous kind of uh, 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 approach with your with the people that are in your life, having that character piece, and then the competence piece, showing them that you can get results, showing them that you've been there before. Those are things that work with your teammates, with your clients, with your tenants, all of those things. So um, building trust and having a good relationship, the ceaselessly curious piece, I think, is so incredibly important. Just ask questions. Find new ways to ask questions. Have a list of questions that you will ask anybody that you're about to have a prospecting call with. And a prospecting call is not just, does this person have a property that I want to list for them? Prospecting is information. You are trying to gather information. And whenever you're going into a conversation where you are prospecting for information, have a list of questions. Make sure they're not just closed-ended questions. It's, are you looking to sell your home? Or or, or, um, when are you hoping to sell your home? It is questions that, that are how and what questions, you know, like tell, or, or tell me or describe to me, like, right? Tell me about your current situation and how long you've been in the home. You know, I'm opening it up to an open ended question so that that person has the ability to speak in prose rather than just answer yes or no. So kind of making sure that you're really understanding the way that you ask questions is important as well. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, I, again, the, the idea of planning and being strategic about your negotiation, not shooting from the hip, but gathering information and, and recording everything that you do throughout a negotiation is going to strengthen you and your position. And it's going to show your client, whoever you're negotiating for, that you are skilled in what you do. And when you show that, when I, I say show your work, when you show your work, that person is far more likely to trust what you're doing and therefore far more likely to be impressed with the, with the, um, with the effort that you're putting into it rather than just saying, I've done this before. I know how it goes and just shooting from the hip. That doesn't show your client your process and they need to see that. Yeah. Yeah. This is great stuff. Thank you for t- walking us through that. Those were good, good pointers. Um, I guess we're at the end of our time here, Eric. Uh, if anybody wanted to find you, learn more about you, how would they do that? Well, um, my one of the the two places that I do most of my social media right now are Instagram and YouTube. So I do a lot of video content, just short, real content on these things that we're talking about, like listening and, um, and, and going to the balcony and, and, um, finding value and loss aversion. All of these things, I, I have reels on them and then they live on my, my YouTube, um, uh, channel as well. But you can find them both at, at Eric the expert. Um, that's, that's kind of my handle across the board. Um, I, as I said, I teach for the real estate negotiation Institute. If there are people who are real estate agents out there, um, I am teaching a class coming up at the end of November. It's a three day online course through the real estate board of New York. Doesn't matter where you are in the country. Uh, this information is incredibly valuable and it's my CNE certified negotiation expert core concepts course. Um, and that can be, I can, I'll give you the link to that. So you can drop that, um, in the, in the show notes, but, um, but I'm having a class, uh, coming up on November 29th, 30th and the 1st of December. And there it's a, it's a, it's a 12 hour course. So it's a nice deep dive into collaborative negotiation, uh, persuasion and influence and the different styles of negotiation, psychology of buying all that stuff. So I'll give you that. And then, um, uh, and then I also am launching a coaching company. Uh, I've recently launched, I should say, a coaching company called Archway Partners. Um, and Archway Partners Inc., that website, keep an eye out for it. It'll be coming soon. Um, and if you're interested in, in, uh, real estate coaching or coaching in general, um, I can give you that information as well. Wonderful. Eric, thank you so much. We appreciate you have, having you on the show and, and sharing some of your knowledge. Thank you so much, TJ. I appreciate this. Right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Living Well with Rentwell. We hope you loved that episode. Please be sure to head over to our website at rentwell.com backslash vision. We're giving away our free program called Vision Through Purposeful Action. If you're a busy person, if you struggle with finding the time and priorities, or if you're experiencing procrastination and overwhelm, this free course will help you with that. We wish you a blessed day. Thank you for tuning in and check in later.